Let's measure for measure. How many people like to play? How many people hated to play? <laughs> okay. Beasley gets out. How many of us vacillated every time? Yeah, 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 yeah not hated. Oh, Tom, not hated. It is a, it is a, uh, it's what they like to call a problem play. It's a play about problems on the one hand, and it also presents problems. Uh, and we'll be uh, talking about uh, some of the uh, the problems in the course of the evening. I'd like as much as possible to respond to questions, but I want to, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the briefest outline of the play, I mean like a, a thumbnail sketch, and then I want to talk about different aspects of it. A very important aspect of it is the conflict and the understanding of marriage, and I think that's the heart of the play. That's the heart of what Shakespeare's talking about here, because it's a, it was a very real political conflict at the time. We're in the transition point of between the Christian view of marriage and the modern view of marriage. And, and the modern view of marriage comes out from a misunderstanding of, uh, of some very, uh, very important and, and deep things. In the medieval period, they understood marriage very well. Uh, then I think we want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the political aspects of the play. This is, a, this is, a, Vienna is obviously a city, a country that is uh, in crisis. And this is a, this is, an element in many of Shakespeare's best plays, Macbeth, for example, and Hamlet, most outstandingly. The, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. It is suggests there's something rotten in the state of Elizabethan England. This is a subject on which our friend Frank Brownlow has uh, lectured for us. That is, there's there's moral depravity and illegitimacy in all these communities. And, and this play takes on, uh, takes on some of that. And thirdly, uh, there are some religious aspects to the play, which we'll talk about. It's a strange play in Protestant England where if you walk down the street dressed as a Franciscan friar or a poor Clare nun, you'd be put to death. And yet, these are major characters in this play. What, what in the world is going on? And then there is, of course, the very strange figure of the Duke, of one, of the, one of the most unsettling, disturbing, and maybe even unsatisfactory characters for a major character in all of Shakespeare. Okay. So, let's go to the... Uh, and uh, please jump in and correct me or ask for questions. Let's just talk about the outline of the play. Briefly, I'm not going to give you the Cliff's Notes version. The uh, the play is set in uh, in a place Shakespeare had never been to, Vienna. So he knows. It's so the the place means nothing. <coughs> the Duke Vincentio. It's interesting how they always have Italian names, even though they're in Germany. The Duke has decided to leave. And, uh, and he wants, and he puts in place a deputy, a substitute, Angelo. He, why does he do this? Well, he says he's got a couple of reasons. He wants to see how Angelo would behave under 
this under the circumstances of having power. He, Angelo has a reputation of being <clears throat> stern, upright, and highly moral. He is, and he is the ideal ruler because nothing he won't, nothing personal will affect him. The Duke confesses that maybe he has been a little lax. If I'm, if I'm extrapolating from the text correctly, he says he's been in power for 14 years, and there were old, tough laws on moral regulation, and he hasn't, you know, he hasn't cracked down. And we'll see, when we talk about this later on, that in fact, uh, the play, the setting, the, the, the circumstances in this city are remarkably immoral. This is a city controlled by uh, prostitutes and pimps. You know, this is not a good place. By the way, I didn't get this the first two times I read it. I just simply assumed Angelo is one of these uh, Puritans who, as H.L. Mencken once said, a Puritan is somebody who lies awake at night worried that somewhere somebody might be having a good time. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but no, it's much worse than that. So Angelo, as soon as he's given the power, cracks down. And, and there's a case of a young man, uh, Claudio or Claudio, who has impregnated his fiancée. Death. Death. And um, this seems a little harsh because, as Claudio explains, you know, they wanted to get married. It's the families that were holding, it's the dowry business. They were, you know, having arguments over the dowry. So they jumped the gun. There was never any intention on the part of the, of the young woman or the young man that they were going to try to escape from this. And this, this will be a big thing that we'll talk about in a minute. So he's condemned to death. He doesn't know what to do. And, uh, he asks his sister, to go because she's his sister who is about to, on the eve of becoming a poor Claire nun. Uh, it says, "Well, everybody admires you. You're beautiful, charming, and wise. And people will give, he'll give you things he wouldn't give me." So he goes. She goes to Angelo and pleads, and Angelo says, "Well, how how much do you love your brother? What are you willing to do? Let's just say hypothetically." Hypothetically, would you be willing to do something that you might otherwise regard as immoral? Because it, because it wouldn't be a sin after all, would it? I mean, if you had, if you had fornicated with somebody, not because you wanted to, but to save your brother's life, this is an act of charity. That's not sinful, is it? Well, she is outraged, because she's, she is, she has the virtue which Angelo doesn't have. So she goes back to her brother and says, well, I, I stuck it in and I broke it off. You, you wouldn't expect me. Well, no, but, you know, death, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sort of ready for, uh, to, to leave this world. They said, but this is disgusting. You mean you would, well, you know, you could consider it wouldn't be a sin after all, would it? I mean, it's not like you want to do this. So, uh, she is, she walks out and she's not going to do it. But uh, now, of course, we have, this is where uh, the, the Duke has, uh, has not actually left town. He has become a friar. 
and the friar, uh, you know, he's pretending to be a friar, and the friar says, oh, look, I think we can work this out. Angelo was once engaged to Mariana, and we could substitute Mariana for you, because after all, it wouldn't be a sin, because they are, they should have been married, and now they will be married. So Mariana goes and spends the night, and per persuades that you know persuades Angelo that in fact she is uh, she she's the beautiful Isabella. So you would think at this point that we might be headed towards some kind of resolution, except Angelo reveals himself to be much worse than we might think, because now I've really got to kill Claudio. Because when he finds out what I've done, he'll come after me. So he has the he has the execution hastened. But meanwhile, of course, the the the, the provost of the prison was a very good person. The duke works upon him to execute somebody else and pretend that it's that it's the brother that it's Claudio, and then. Uh, and then have the you know a false head brought to him, etc. And so Angelo will now be reassured. The Duke, meanwhile, uh, then reappears as the Duke. You know, you can imagine trumpets, you know, trumpets blasting, big triumphal entry. <laughs> and he says, "Well, how's everything going?" And Isabella comes in, not knowing who he is, and de and she denounces Angelo. Well, the Duke pretends to be horrified, and he claims. Well, this is an outrage. Angelo is perfectly upright, and and well, there's this nasty fri there's this friar who who was involved, and Lucio, who is the the uh, is spends all his life with prostitutes. Yes, and, and by the way, that prior was a, a a knave. He was an evil person. He said bad things about the duke. Actually, it was he who said all the bad things about the duke. So the duke uh, goes, well, I have to leave, you people handle it, and he comes back as the friar. And then, of course, find Lucio, because he is, he just cannot control himself, whips his hood off, and then they realize, oh my gosh, it is the duke. Well, Angelo, of course, says, I, there's no point in, in asking for mercy, because I don't deserve it. And the, the duke says, well, you, uh, yes, you deserve to die, but first I'm going to make you get you married. Uh, so he, he has to marry Mariana, and then he forgive, forgives him. And then he, and then he tells Lucio he has to marry the first strumpet that claims him. <laughs> and then he'll be executed. And, and he says, well, execute me, but don't marry, make me marry a prostitute. And, uh, and the Duke is, if I'm reading the scene right, he says, well, I forgive everything else, but you'll still have to marry a prostitute. And then the surprise movie, it reminds me of the end of Gilbert and Sullivan's trial by jury, you know, where the judge, it's a, it's a case, breach of promise case, and uh, nobody can decide. And finally, the, 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 uh, the judge says, uh, all your, all the legal fury sees you. Nothing I do seems to please you. I can't sit up here all day. I must shortly get away, etc. He says, I'll, I'll, ma I'll marry her myself. Well, the Duke then marries his, says, well, tells Isabella, what, whatever you, and she, she gets no answer. 
So the 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 would the aspiring poor Claire ends up marrying the ruler. Have I left anything really material out? That's essentially. It is. It is. Uh, it is a comedy. Okay. It's a comedy, though, with with life and death consequences, because. You know, like four characters have been threatened with death. Uh, I think before they before we're through, and so it's a, it's an extremely serious comment. No questions, comments. Let me just say something about when Claudio is first being presented with the fact that he may be put to death. Yes. And he rambles on about the futility of life and. And how sad things are going to be, and you know, well, we don't need to live that long. I, it sounded so much like Hamlet's soliloquy. Uh, yes, that's right. I didn't say there's a consummation devoutly to be wished, and of course he didn't say that because that wasn't in the play. But does the Shakespeare sort of continue on with this one because he seems to enjoy the yes. idea of death and what happens after we all die, and and where's it going, and it's, now, it, obviously, Claudia didn't say that, but... It, it is a favorite theme. It's also a favorite theme of his contemporaries. Uh, John Webster, you know, uh, the white devil, and uh, I mean, it's... And in fact, you know, uh, T.S. Eliot has a poem which begins, Webster was much obsessed with death. And uh, because, because Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights, they're brooding on this constantly. And I think maybe... If you lived under the Tudors, Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, <coughs> Bloody Mary, Elizabeth, you'd you'd better be thinking about death all the time because at at it, it's like the 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 Red Queen and Alice, you know, off with their head, off with their head. These people are homicidal maniacs, every one of them, especially Elizabeth. Okay, <coughs> now let's go on to the marriage question. The, this is a play, it seems to me, that's full of very carefully constructed parallels that you have to think about. And the, 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 the big parallel in the play is the parallel between Claudio and his, uh, his, uh, fiance, what's her name? Juliet. Yeah, Juliet. Right. Between Claudia, because you know, she's a non-person in the play, unfortunately, uh, and Angelo and Mariana. Claudio is going to be uh, executed under an old law because he has had sexual relations with a woman that he's betrothed to. At the, near the end of the play, the Duke says it's okay for Mariana to sleep with Angelo because A, they're betrothed, and the consummation makes it a marriage. Now, these are exactly parallel cases. Now, Isabella condemns her brother for having uh, had relations before they've had the, uh, before, you know, the, the blessing has been said. But in, but she is willing to go ahead with this deal with, between Mariana and Angelo. 
this, 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 this parallelism of the cases is not some kind of accident. And it raises the question that I think is really the center of the play. And the, set, and the, the question is, what is marriage and how, it, and how should it be regulated? In the early church, let's just say from, well, from, 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 from the beginning of the church till um, roughly, till the Council of Trent, if we're going to talk Catholic. Marriage was, there are all sorts of different regulations, it depends on where you lived and when. The, uh, but the, the early position was essentially the Roman position. <clears throat> Marriage required the moral consent of the two parties, usually, depending on their age or, or condition, it required the approval of the parents. The betrothal was the important part, and with a, if, the, if after the betrothal the marriage was consummated, in, and in, in, not exactly in front of witnesses, but, but there had to be witnesses that, yes, I take you, you take me, and then they went off to a bedroom. That's it. That's marriage. The church in the early days had more or less nothing to do with it because it was a Roman marriage. It wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing particularly uh, religious about getting married. And this is from the time of the apostles down to fairly late. In, um, and, and different customs develop in different parts of Europe. But for example, in, in, uh, Tuscany, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, Mo very few marriages were performed in a church. Very few marriages were solemnized by the church. If a priest was present, he was present as a friend of the family to give a blessing. He did, the, 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 the church had no real effective role in, in, in effectuating the marriage. Because the marriage consisted of the, of essentially, the partners had to have the capacity to marry. They couldn't be brother and sister or first cousins. They couldn't be mental, you know, mentally disturbed. They had to know what they were doing. They had to have free will assent. You couldn't compel somebody to get married. And the marriage had to, they had to pledge, they had to pledge it, and then it had to be consummated. There's a very famous, uh, uh, <clears throat> case in Florence under the very great Bishop Antoninus. St. Antonines. And a woman, a, a, a widow, an attractive widow of lower middle class, married a wealthy gentleman. In her home, they swore their own presence of witnesses. There was a priest there as a friend of hers, and then they went off. He later on had the opportunity to marry a rich girl, and so he said, well, I wasn't really married. So she sued him, when he tried to get married, she sued him for trying to cause, create a bigamous relationship. He then denounced her to the civil government of Florence saying that she was trying to poison him. So uh, Bishop Antonino 
try to hold the uh, the uh, was going to hold a trial, <coughs> and the uh, podesta, the foreign uh, judicial ruler, the foreign judicial ruler said, no, no, my case, the poisoning case, takes precedence over your case. The bishop then said, fine, I'm putting you, the ruling class, and the uh, and uh, everybody in Florence under an interdict. No mass, no funeral, no nothing. And so he, in fact, he won uh, temporarily. You know, rich, bad people go off and do what they do. What's what's the great uh, what's the great uh, monastery in Florence? San Marco. No, San Marco. The uh, where all the Fra Angelico uh, uh, paintings are. There's, by the way, Bishop Antonino was uh, was abbot there, and they show his cell, and there's a there's a portrait. He's a very he's a very great man. Because Antonino said, you know, essentially, look, you don't need rigmarole. They're married. They ple they they pledge themselves, and they consummate it. That's it. End of story. Uh Pope Innocent III tried to standardize these things. He tried to get things so that, well, you should have, because, you know, there are, there are, there are ways you could cheat. So, yeah, Innocent III tried to crack down, and in England especially, because Eng the English were very loose about, about marriage laws. But one of his, part of his crackdown was that, um, betrothal takes precedence over marriage. It's, and he ruled in a case. This is this is interesting because it goes right to the heart of this play. He ruled in a case that a a woman who had been engaged to a man, and then he broke it off over dowry, you know, problems. He breaks it off. Years later, she she's a mother. She's a wife and mother. She has inherited property, and so now she's desirable. And he comes in and claims her, and according to innocent. The betrothal, the previous betrothal, has prior claims to her actual to her actual marriage. Now, this is a, I think this is a very bad bad decision. But my point is that it reflects the medieval understanding of what marriage is, and marriage is not a license from the government. Marriage is not even something the church decrees. Marriage is the reality of the pledge and the consummation. So that's what we're dealing with here in this play. Now, jump up to the Reformation. Big argument in the Reformation. Martin Luther took a, 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 a position, an understandable position, I think it was mistaken. That in a case where a couple, a clandestine marriage, couple runs away, man and woman, and the guy to either cynics, oftentimes he said, "Hey, babe, we're going to get married. We just run away." That oh, you know, six weeks later, my father says we can't. So it's been nice. I know you're pregnant, but it's too bad. The Catholic position was, gee, you were married, you, you know, you, everything is, you can't get out of this. And Luther took the position that, 
the priests were, were instigating this and that therefore the father should have the final say. There's a very excellent book by a Lutheran scholar named Stephen Osmond called When Fathers Rule. This is a very, this is a very tricky thing and Luther's position is quite understandable and justifiable, but it led to the state control of marriage, which we see in our own time is not a very good idea. <coughs> When you know when uh, you can marry you, when a man can marry his male German shepherd, things have gone a bit too far. <laughs> so now in England, but see, but this is a minor thing because Luther had essentially the traditional Christian understanding of marriage, and Luther was a very robust person with a with a with a with a strong understanding of these things. The Calvinists become weird, and. The Calvinists take the position that uh, you know they're not they're not so hot. Betrothal doesn't mean anything. Consummation's not important. You know, getting get, doing the uh, doing the law the right way. The Puritans in England, at the time the play is being written and performed, said that there should be severe penalties, up to and including death, for anybody who does what Claudio did. Now, in, in Catholic Anglican England, because England's a transitional point at this point, in England at that time, the theory was, the legal theory was, that if you were, if you and your, and your bride to be jumped the gun, you were supposed to appear four Sundays in a row in front of the congregation, dressed in penitential garb and confess your crime, your sin. Well, you know, people being people, what it turned out is you needed um, ten people to witness with you, but they were all with you, and you got to pick them. So you picked ten close relatives, and you went like once with the priest, and you said, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. As, and as long as you're married, as long as everything works out. You know, a, a rather more humane solution to the question. So what you have going on right now, in England at 1600, right now, is a conflict between two views of marriage. One view which is entirely legalistic, the Calvinist view, and the other view which you could call the Lutheran Catholic view, which is humane and understanding. Understand, you know, well, we make, we all make mistakes. And, uh, because, because again, Luther disagreed with the Catholic tradition on the point of clandestine marriage, but in all other respects, it's you know it's, it's very close, especially on the nature of what marriage is. So this this play is like a laboratory experiment to determine which side is right. Well, as it turns out, of course, uh, <laughs> in the play, Claudio has has uh, uh, he, I mean, I'm sorry, Angelo has abandoned a woman. See, we, we find this hard to understand, that a betrothal is a serious moral, spiritual, legal commitment. It's not something, you can't just say, well, honey, you know, I know I asked you to get married, but <sighs> I changed my mind. I've, I've met a new girl. You know, I was dancing with my darling, you know. And while we were dancing, my sweet, while they were dancing, my sweethearts, you know, my friends stole my sweetheart from me. I mean, the Tennessee, the morality of the Tennessee walls 
It is not the morality uh, of the Christian tradition. I, I find nobody, it's very difficult to explain this. So that Claudio's betrothal, just as Angelo's betrothal, this is 99% marriage. And if they, if they got a little too frisky, nobody was, nobody was condemning them. Uh, the, the, the would-be poor Claire, you know, that's a very severe or, you know, order. The would-be poor Claire condemns, condemns her brother, although she, she, she fights to keep him alive. Any questions at this point before we go on? Because this is sort of, this is sort of tricky business. Well, you know, Claudio makes the, makes the comment that, uh, uh, this uh, function of chopping off heads uh, has been obsolete for years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, why is why yeah. is uh, yeah. Angelo doing this? Yeah. Uh, for self-aggrandizement, I guess. Well, it's an interesting speech. Uh, the provost, who is a nice guy, says, "I uh, he's he's taking him to prison. <clears throat> I do it not in evil disposition, but from Lord Angelo by special charge." And Claudio says, thus can the demigod authority, because again, you're talking now about something like a Calvinist state. You're talking now about John Knox. John Knox. Thus can the demigod authority make us pay down for our offense by weight the words of heaven, on whom it will, it will. On whom it will not, so yet tis still tis just. And uh, Claudio says to Lucio, which is, uh, he says, why, how, where comes this restraint? From too much liberty, my Lucio, liberty, as surfeit is the father of much fast. You eat too much, so you have to fast. So every scoop by the immoderate use, so every, every purpose or every desire turns to restraint. Our natures do pursue like rats that raven down their proper bane, a thirsty evil. And when we drink, we die. You know, rats will go in and drink rats' bane because they're, they're attracted to it and it kills them. So what, what Claudio is saying is that this society has become immoral. It's become loose and immorally unrestrained. And so uh, now... It's got to go the, it's the pendulum has to go the other way. You know, what happened in Victorian England succeeded a very loose period of morals in Romantic England. And then what happened? Well, Edwardian England and then the Roaring Twenties. It goes back and forth. You go too far in one direction and then you go too far in the other. And obviously Shakespeare is trying to tell us to steer a, a middle course between the grotesque immorality uh, that is being shown in Vienna, which is clearly the grotesque immorality of Elizabethan London in his time, and then the attempt to correct it by fanatical, hysterical Puritan regulation, which, does, which, which treats human beings as if they were uh, inanimate objects. Any, uh, yeah, let me, let me read it down a little bit. Um, and, and now, the, the new deputy now for the Duke, says Claudio, whether it be the fault and glimpse of newness, that is, whether it's just, you know, he's feeling his oats, 
or whether that the body public be a horse whereon the governor doth ride. Boy, talk about the world we live in. Well, if they can do it, why well, they better do it. Who newly in the seat that it may know he can command, lets it straight feel the spur. Whether the tyranny be in his place, that is just the fact that he's the ruler, or in his eminence that fills it up, I stagger in. But this new governor awaits me all the enrolled penalties which have like unscoured armor hung by the wall so long that nineteen zodiacs have gone round and none of them been worn and for a name. Now puts the drowsy and neglected act, that is the law, freshly on me, to surely for a name. So. Yes. What are nineteen zodiacs? Yes. You got me. There's a, it's a, it's a sequence. No, it's, is it, is it just a year or it's a... A partial year? No, it's, 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 God, I used to know more of this astrology, but, uh... Oh, X. Yes, it's a, yes, that's right, that's right, that's right, but I think it's... So maybe that would be one year. I, yeah, I, I have a feeling that the... Maybe it's the 12 months and the moons there. Well... I think it, it's it's a, it's a it's an astrological alchemical notion, and the question is, what is a whole what is a full zo zodiacal cycle? Maybe it just is a year, so that would be nineteen years. Nineteen years. Um, I have a question, sure, or or, or a comment here. Um, <laughs> then and now, um, we have not been here for one of these. Yeah. Monthly sessions before now, <laughs> and here we got the word that this was going to be on measure for measure, yeah. and so we went to our bookshelves and um, found oh Alan's grandfather's Shakespeare, his great aunt's Shakespeare, and then this dear little book. Uh, my mother was born here in Rockford in 1912. Now think about this. So here's this little Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb. Okay, my mother was given this book by her parents, and her mother was an absolutely Victorian Presbyterian lady. Daughter of a southern minister and everything, given this book when she was eight years old. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Holy Toledo! It was nighttime now, reading. Oh, nighttime reading! Go to bed, You know, and so here are all these tales from Shakespeare. Tonight we'll read Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. TV. And, and so I read the what? Twelve pages. You know, she sure, knew Miss Overdone as a as an eight year old. And, wow. and I knew my grandmother, and my grandmother would not have presented this to me. So I'm looking at this, thinking my mother w was apparently subjected. I mean, think about yeah, that, yeah. you know. And then also extrapolate because you know we've got little eight year old granddaughters. Yes. Would they get into something like this? What the what the heck? <laughs> I mean, were our kids yeah, reading this in Rockford, you know, yeah. 90 years ago? Well, it was never, 
you know, it was never part of the uh, school Shakespeare. You know, in America, the school Shakespeare was, was um, what, Romeo and Juliet, As You Like It, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar Macbeth, Hamlet, and uh, a few others. But there were... Uh, I, I may, I've always maintained that they, you should never let a kid read Julius Caesar, uh, um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, because they get funny ideas. <laughs> you know. But but the truth is, they made you go see that. They made us go to the movie and it. In seven, you were in seventh grade to see it. Seventh grade with uh, the uh, the Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli movie. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. They made us go see. See that. what you don't want to get kids is oh we're so much in love we have to kill ourselves. No, <laughs> I, don't tell teenagers. Well, we didn't think of that then, <laughs> but now. No, no. <laughs> so the 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 uh, one answer is of course that's why they were giving them Charles and Mary Lamb. You know, which is uh, which is uh, considerably uh, 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 toned down and expurgated. Oh yeah. And of oh, course, oh, um, it's a lovely book. I haven't I haven't actually read one of them in about forty years, but it's a <laughs> it's a lovely treatment. And uh, of course, you know, Mary was insane. You know, she was schizof intermittently schizophrenic. It would have to be. And she would say things, well, Charles, because she, you know, she would, she would literally chase people around the house with a knife trying to kill them. And so she would say, well, dear brother, perhaps it's time to take me away. And yes, I'm afraid it is. And they'd take her to this insane asylum and chain her up. And then she'd be informed that she had calmed down again and they let Mary out. I'm sorry, but you mean you're talking about the person who wrote this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Charles, Charles Lamb was a very great essayist, and his sister was uh, was a very, you know was an intelligent person. But you know, some she wasn't mentally disturbed. A la, I need to go talk to my shrink. I mean, she was schizophrenic. I mean, she had intermittent periods of total insanity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, life is life is life is fun, and it, it did not make uh, did not enrich the life of Charles Lamb to have this burden on. <laughs> it's hard to get married, hard to raise a family when any day sister might just take a knife to the whole to the lot of them. Was it? Yeah. You know, uh, Whitaker Chambers had what his grandmother was living with him when he was a kid, and she would she would have the same thing. She would chase them around with a butcher knife trying to kill the kill the family. No wonder Chambers was so nice. <laughs> or maybe he just took it's after his. <laughs> Hmm? Yes. I was struck when I first read this with the abuse of power. Yes. And I don't know if you've explored that. No, we haven't got on no. to that. All right. But that is, we could, let, let's get on to that. Let's just, five, if you, what, one of the things that Franny's talking about, and I, I think well, then leads to the uh, question of abuse of power, I've read I've read all of Shakespeare like three times, and I've read a lot of the plays five or six times. I don't know a single other play where the immorality is at such a disgusting level. You know, okay, Lucio is funny, and the, and that that let me go back to that 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 opening dialogue with uh, Lucio and his friends is in, I think it's in uh, Act 1, Scene 2, is it sets the mood for the play. The, the first and second gentleman, 
and it's full of really nasty, dirty puns. And um, let's see. He says, um, for example, uh, it's all pretty, it's all it's all pretty clever. Luch, uh, uh, the first gentleman, heaven grant us peace, but not the king of Hungary's peace. Amen. Thou concludest like the sanctimonious pirate that went to sea with the Ten Commandments, but scraped one out of the table. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal? Aye, that he raised. Why, t'was a commandment to command the captain and all the rest from their functions. They put forth to steal. There's not a, sol a soldier of us all that in the thanksgiving before meat do relish the petition well that prays for peace. Because a typical Elizabethan grace had a part pray for peace. The second gentleman, I never heard any soldier dislike it. Lucio, I believe thee, for I think thou never wast where grace was said. <laughs> second gentleman, no, a dozen times at least. I mean, all the, I mean, what, what kind of a society, what kind of a Christian society where a, a 30 year old man has heard grace a dozen times? What, in meter? This is disputed. Does this mean it was a, they did it as a poem or whatever? In any proportion or in any language, says Lucio. And the first gentleman, I think, or in any religion. Now we're getting into, you know, well, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim. I, why not? Grace is grace despite of all controversy. Or excuse me, controversy. As for example, thou thyself art a wicked villain despite of all grace. Now, this is interesting. If you're, I should ask, uh, I should ask Ward Sterrick, if, if you're a good Calvinist, of course, you have, you either have grace or you don't have grace. And if you have grace, then you can go out and commit mass murder, and it doesn't matter. You're, you're saved. You're saved. And this is sure, clearly Shakespeare's view. So I think he's setting you up right here. Grace or no grace, or no grace, you're a villain. So, uh, and that, hmm? I'm an Arminian. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah. We will. <laughs> I've got uh, I've got a nice additional Arminius uh, upstairs, so I'll have to give it to you. There yes, Jean. With uh, I'm sorry. No? With free, with Calvinism, there's no responsibility. Yeah, there can't. It's like Islam. You know, in Islam, if you, uh, you're a soldier, you go into a town, you rape a woman, and she comes pregnant, and she says, wait a minute, you made me pregnant. Allah made you pregnant. I didn't make you pregnant. That was Allah. He, Allah chose to Inshallah. Yeah, uh, exactly. The exactly. devil made me do it. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, yeah, but, 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 oh, yeah. So, Calvin says, Calvin says similarly, there are no intermediate causes. Everything that happens is because some demon in the sky he chooses to call God. This demon said, ah, you'll die, I cancer for you, uh, accident over here, and just bing, bing, bing. And I've heard Sunday school teachers talk this way. They said, don't talk to children like this. God didn't give you cancer. God didn't kill your pony. I knew this. I, 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 I was running a school, a little school. 
And I had a, I had a first grade teacher. She was a very sweet girl. And she was, she was a reformed Presbyterian, very Calvin, very Calvinist. So she and her husband had lost a power struggle in the local New Wapatal Presbyterian Church where our friend Sam Dixon's father had been pastor like 60 years ago. So uh, one day the granddaughter of the, of the guy who, of the, the leading, who led the winning faction, granddaughter, and she's late to school, she's upset. Well, Micah, what's wrong? My pony died. Do you think if you loved Jesus more than your pony, he wouldn't have taken him away? <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that God the Father and God the Son are sitting up there looking down and saying, I think I'll take her pony. She wasn't, she was on the, her grandpa was on the wrong side in a church struggle. Now, because because if you if, if there's a there's a very beautiful novel called the uh, the short title is the memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner written by James Hogg who was an illiterate shepherd to the age of about twenty one uh, a very a, a protege of Walter Scott this is one of the masterpieces of English literature it's one of the greatest works of fiction in our language and it's it's about a man he's a he's a good Calvinist so he knows he's saved. And he has a he has a friend, always dressed in a somber, dark cloak, who keeps on telling him he can do anything because he has grace. Because by the end of the book, you know who the friend is. There's a, a whiff of sulfur about it. <laughs> but the boy, his guy slanders, uh, blackmail, and murder because he's justified. I once loaned this book to Serge Trifkovich. He was staying here, and the next day I said, "Well, you?" And he said, "Thanks a lot for giving me that book." He said, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't go to sleep until I finished it. It's that good. It's that good. Don't ask me why people don't read it. I, I, I have, I, everyone I've given this book to has, has said it's, it's, it's a white hot book. It's, it's written in the early 19th century. It reads more like a French novel of the mid 20th century. It is just searing hot. But that's the point. And, and that's what we hear here. As, for example, thou thyself art a wicked villain despite all grace. Well, who does that point to? Who has, who would claim to have grace in this play? Angelo. Angelo is perfect. He's a Puritan who has grace. And, and the Lucio is his alter ego. That is a completely dissolute whoremonger. But he's his alter ego. And so they balance each other. So here we have this society. In which are those our two choices, Angelo and Lucio? It's, it, is that is that the choice of Elizabethan England? Either people like uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, who was the most notorious, you know, uh, skirt chaser in Europe at the time, or these crazed these crazed Calvinist Puritans. Is that it? You have to take one or the other. Angelo and. Um Angelo is the strict uh, enforcer of the law, off with his head or hang yeah. him, and the, his second command, this, this, Aeschylus, Aeschylus yes. says, let's, let's not do it. Let, yeah. let's, uh, let's not push him off the, 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 the uh, plank so that he breaks his neck or, or that he cuts himself to death. Rather than cut off his head, 
let's just slice them a little bit. So is is there some yes? That there's some talk in in at that time where we're oh we're not going to be yeah. so right wing or left wing. I exactly. Mean, I, I read that and I thought, my God, we're yeah. doing this today. You know, yeah. we've got this this. Es Escalos. Yeah. Escalos. Yes. Is, yeah. is this uh, bleeding heart liberal? And, um, <laughs> and Angelo is our right wing. Um, Not case, yes. Let's kill the sucker. You know, I, the is, is Escalos is Escalos and the Provost are decent human beings. They tried. They do their job. They've been commanded to uh, obey. They are the Duke's men, but they're commanded to obey Angelo, and they they believe in the law. But they, they feel they have to go on with this. And when each of them, their conscience is appealed to, they try to do the right thing. So they're, they are middle of the roaders, whereas Angel, Angelo is nuts because he can't obey his own law. He, you know, Claudio went to bed with the woman he wanted to marry. Angelo wa wants to rape a nun. You know, wants to have, wants to seduce her, have sex with her. He doesn't want to marry her. He never says, "Look, sweetie, I'll I'll release your brother and maybe give me three months to make it. I'll 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 show you I could be a good husband." No, he doesn't do that. He, you know, he's a complete hypocrite of the worst order. He can't now. See, and he's he's a classic case like Karl Marx or Rousseau. All these people, they preach perfectionism, but they can't keep an, just the most ordinary morality that just decent people that you know up and down the block can keep. He's worse than everybody else, but he demands a, a heroic morality that would be impossible for, for anybody. Yeah. <clears throat> but he accepted the accusation when it was finally proven. Yeah. So everything he did, and he was perfectly willing to suffer, to, to suffer the... How does that happen with a hypocrite? That does Because, because he's also, because this is what makes it difficult. My wife compared him to somebody we know he used to work with, and I said, well, that's a little unfair. But, um, but he, he is a, he is a noble person. On one level, he deserves the Duke's admiration. He's not going to take bribes. He's going to be severe. The law is the law. All of this is going to be fine. But but he had but he can't keep but he can't live up to his own standard. And so at the end he does he is partially redeemed. And, and and the woman still loves him. So he's partially redeemed by his willingness to accept uh, the re <clears throat> this reality. So. Uh, some people have asked me, well, I don't understand, because this play is a serious play, then you have play, then you have these alternate scenes with pimps and prostitutes. What's going on here? What, what kind of a play is this? And the answer is, those scenes are not just funny, because they are, with the ridiculous policeman Elbow, and, uh, who says, who, who doesn't know enough English, so he says things like, uh, I have never treated my wife with respect, you know. <laughs> and uh, people are wondering, you know, like, that's insane. But, um, but you, ha you, ha you, ha you have these wonderful low-life characters, but similar to, uh, say, um, in, um, in, Hen in Henry V, uh, in the, the uh, early, I'm sorry, Henry IV, part two, in these scenes with Falstaff and Bardolph and Nim and Pistol and, 
all of those shows you there's something wrong in the Lancastrian regime that there's so much immorality. They're funny characters, but it's also, if you step back for a moment and take a breath, you realize you don't want you don't you you don't want Sir John Falstaff running around in positions of authority. <laughs> and I mean he's funny, and by the way, people he got the most applause uh, in, 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 in in the play. But when well, when Shakespeare brings on Henry V, it virtually begins with somebody narrating the death of Falstaff, because you just can't have that anymore. Henry V is supposed to be legitimate, unlike his father. So in this play, these humorous scenes show you how depraved the society is. And he's talking about England in his own day, as he always is. What role did Elgo's wife play in all of this? Well, how the hell does she get involved in this? All of a sudden, that's you have a these great, two guys that are being yeah, charged yeah. before Angelo. Yeah. And I really never connected that. What it, was it seems to be is she was lured into a bordello and had sex yeah, with people. That's all she, I can guess. If she hadn't been in a cardinal way. Yes, that's right. That is, yeah. Cardinal sin, I yeah. suppose. Yes, yes. She would have joined. Yeah. Uh, Miss, yeah. not Money Penny, whatever the heck her name is, you know, keeps, <laughs> keep pants or yes. overdone or whatever. <laughs> she would have joined, she would have joined in the business. Yeah. But I never really, I, I never caught on with what the wife yeah. did. All of a yeah. sudden she's presented and she's charged elbow with this. Yeah. How'd that all happen? Yeah, well, <laughs> for one thing, it shows you, I mean, elbow is supposed to be the officer of the law. Well, how? And uh, this is an interesting little thing because he's not really a government employee. He works for his ward, that is for his for his uh, for his neighborhood. He's, uh, and nobody else wants. They're supposed to rotate these jobs, but nobody else wants to do it, so they just pay him to keep doing it. And so it's his only job. So he's the kind of government flunky we've all come to know and love, you know, because he can't do any real work, so he does this instead. And uh, and yes, and, and he can't keep control of his wife, so he's angry with with uh, with Bill Scarpacci, otherwise known as Pompey the Clown. <laughs> Pompey Bum. Yes, you. The uh, I don't know if you know that, but Bill confessed that he played Pompey the Clown in a uh, in a in a production. No. <laughs> well done. They thought they thought it would be easy. <laughs> I wanted to make uh, two comments. First, all of these comic degenerate characters <laughs> are metaphorically the weeds <coughs> of the Garden of England. Yep, you. And they they represent the underbelly of all English society. The second comment I wanted to make is something. Not particularly personal, but only to the extent that I know this particular person who, when she was an undergraduate at Rockford College, was studying measure for measure. And she went to her English professor's office to seek some help about the writing of a paper. And he played the role of Angelo with her. Attempting to hit her, attempting to offer sexual bribery for a higher grade. Well, she was Isabella, and she left that office, she withdrew from that class, and to this day, she looks with at this play with great disdain. <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't know how the game was played. Yeah. She didn't want to play the game. Yeah. Tommy, you had mentioned the reference to syphilis. 
Yeah. You, you, you commented how important this was yeah. in, in, in this play. Yeah, I mean, every all the humor, every all the humor, this is, Gail was asking me about, uh, there's this long thing about velvet, you know, triple pile velvet and everything, and I'm pie. Well, apparently there's a pun on, uh, on piled and peeled, and peeled means bald, and bald people are bald because they're suffering from syphilis, syphilis. the French pox. Yeah. No offense to anybody, Ward, Frank, <laughs> who, uh, who, uh, Bill, who, uh, have, have lost all their hair. I wonder, <laughs> can I talk about the, the acting dimension associated with this play? Uh, I've seen a pattern, not only in productions in which I were involved, but productions that I've seen, that, um, there is something about whether we're talking about Falstaff or whether we're talking about Elbow, these characters have to be portrayed in very histrionic ways. They have to yeah. exaggerate their characterization. And this is done with a great deal of vocal emphasis, a great deal of, of cadence to the lines, so that the audiences get the double entendre yeah. that's intended. And so that, by way of an acting style then, when these scenes take place in these plays, they are so exaggerated, so histrionic, as to contrast the acting of these scenes with the other scenes associated yeah. with the so-called nobility. And you'll notice even in the writing uh, of this play, there was an interesting transition when the Duke becomes the friar, his speeches are prose. Yeah. Rather than poetry. Yeah. No. So I just wanted to mention Yeah, yeah, that no, that's ex extremely good yeah. point. So, to go back to what, uh, what the question Gail raised, we have, we have, first of all, we, we've got a, 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 a society that's out of joint. <clears throat> it's in, uh, that license is, uh, is allowed to, uh, run riot. We, the Duke says, well, I have to go away and put Angelo in power because I can't crack down because people are used to thinking of me as a nice guy. And, uh, and then it would be tyrannical. You know, it would be, it would be very upsetting if I did the crackdown. So Angelo can do the crackdown. But of course, now this is where it gets to be troublesome. Because he knows that Angelo walked out on his fiancée, so he can't be as good a man as he thinks he is. Or, you know, maybe Angelo, of course, did put the story out that Mariana was uh, immoral, was had, uh, addicted to levity, I think he, as he puts it. So, but, so th this is, so this is, he says is his motive. But uh, by the end of the play, we, the Duke is, seems to actually know everything going on. But meanwhile, he, he, he puts in, after 14 years of laxity, of excessive laxity, <laughs> he put, then he puts, in, he puts in, you know, John Knox to, to, uh, to, uh, to run it. And, uh, and it's obviously uh, a, a disaster. Now, Lucio, of course, who is a liar and a slanderer, Lucio tells the, uh, the friar, uh, the duke in disguise, 
that well, you know, the Duke was a drunkard and he liked women. You know, I, you know, I, in fact, I, uh, I, it's, I sired a bastard by one of his mistresses because I got there first. And you know, he said, "Surely you, you slander this man." And he says, "No, no, no, you don't know him the way I know him." <laughs> you know, well, the the thing is, on the one hand, this is just humor, right? Because we know Lucio is a braggart and a liar. On the other hand, Lucio has good stuff in him. He wants to save his friend Claudio. I mean, he's not—he's not a completely bad character. But is—is is, obviously we don't allow this to go on if it's not a question worth raising. It, is the Duke himself responsible for this immorality? And the ultimate answer will be, well, not really, because people—you know—people choose to do the bad things they do, and he. And he is not, it's made very clear, he is not a drunkard, not, not a womanizer, that he has done none of these things. But, but when you allow it to go on, aren't you to some extent responsible? Mark? Well, yes. isn't that uh, kind of a lesson for today when aristocracy takes a 14-year vacation? <laughs> then um, then uh, they don't set the tone, and yeah. uh, this is what happens. Yeah. Or the aristocracy takes the, uh, they adopt the, the values of the lower classes, is what, is what we have today. Should we take a break? We, uh, and in fact, uh, take a break and then get some food and then uh, have just the, have some, the, the, uh, the, the one subject I thought we could discuss after we've eaten and drunk something is um, what, you know, the, the 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 role of the duke is very troubling and what i want to put on the table is set aside his weaknesses and mistakes what being in the universe works behind the scenes to make things work out whether we real whether we're worthy of it or not and it is not, it is not human in other words he's he is a semi divine character uh, you know, who, who is, uh, the Holy Spirit. Yes, he is working things out. And, uh, and I think, I asked, uh, because I'm, I, this has always been my feeling about the play, so I made a point of talking to Frank Brownlow about it, and he said, oh yeah, of course, of course. But, uh, you know, what, what, what is obvious to him is maybe not so obvious to, to all of us all the time. And that we could talk about this aspect of how this actor behind, how this character behind the scenes, manipulates things. Yes, sir. I, well, it's, it becomes pretty obvious that one of the major central themes of this play is the idea and the question of mercy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in the very, well, well, again, let's get some food. i got to go out and get the, the pork roast from the smoker. And, uh, and what, but one, but one of the themes at the very, very end, you know, he's ready to use you know, what you might Angelo like justice to kill all these people and doesn't. And doesn't. So let's it's gonna be rather brief. Uh, people said that they want to have this discussion about the character of the Duke and his role in the play. Who would who would who would like to say something about that to begin with? Somebody I noticed Michael Brunner was tentatively raising his hand. Well, I was going to say something about how disappointing it is sometimes when you have a character named Angelo and you really expect the person to be a little angel. Yes. And, and it's just not that way. And it, it, it sort of it, it colors the whole thing. 
And of course, that has nothing to do with the Duke, so to speak. I think it's like Angel in the Rockford Five. Yes, I think you're right. Actually, you know, it is possible that Shakespeare is doing this coyly, that Angelo is a fallen angel. Oh, there we go. It could be, because he has no, he has great elements of nobility, and, uh, heroic nobility, but he is, he is fallen. He gives way to his weaker nature. And there, are, there are all these um, statements, you get it in uh, Aristotle, and you even get it in, the, uh, in Sherlock Holmes, that in... in uh, Attempting to rise above human nature, you are less likely to become an angel than you are to become a demon. Because, you know, human nature is the way we are created. There are conditions laid on, on uh, how we are to live. And attempting to escape from sex roles, marriage, private property, social hierarchy, all of that, we, uh, we end up being... Uh, uh, Stalinists or or Hitlerites, and so it could be, it could be he's no offense. I just said, oh, well. <laughs> the um, so there are uh, that th there is that element. The 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 character of the Duke. I'll just I'll, I'll start. I'll put the question on the table. On the one hand, he, he by his own confession he's been lax. He hasn't, he hasn't been an effective ruler. Uh, and in that sense, I'd say he's a lot like Henry VIII uh, or uh, Elizabeth. Mm. On the other hand, on the other hand, he then says he is going to let uh, Angelo uh, prove himself. But, you know, we, as the play unfolds, he seems to know a lot more than he should about all these things. And he seems to take uh, uh, a much more uh, humane and uh, uh, intelligent role. I, I probably, the trouble with having a this stupid machine uh, that is an iPad dominated by the demon, the demon of Steve Jobs. But, um, so, the, the question on the table is, uh, how much do, A, how much do we blame the Duke for letting this stuff go on? Oh, I should. Yes. He should. I should, for sure. How much? It seems like he's got a plan. Yes. It seems like he's got, that's the whole reason he went undercover. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean, it seems like, like he said, he knows more than he lets on in the beginning. It's almost like he sets up a trap for Angelo. I agree with that, but does he want people to die because of this? Well, he doesn't he let them die. Yeah, he, he no, all right, but that's... that's so you have to judge that in retrospect. He doesn't let them die. But couldn't he have found somebody better than Angela? <laughs> I mean, really? Or is that just... Otherwise, you wouldn't have to play, I suppose. But still... Well, <clears throat> I, Gail was complaining about some of this, and I said, look, when uh, Joseph K. wakes up, 
one day in the Kafka fantasy and discovers he's some kind of beetle or cockroach, you don't expect him to have a, a knowledge and understanding of entomology. All right. So you accept the premise that, gee, I don't know why or how, but I'm a beetle, I'm a cockroach. So in a in a in a play that can only take like two hours, three hours in a play, you have to accept the operating premises and then move on. For some mysterious reason, he decides he's going to uh, test people, and uh, and so he does. And you know, even at the you know, for me, it's it's a it, it's a very troubling. Uh, he needs to be spanked. Yes. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. But then he should be spanked also for allowing all this stuff to happen all these years. Exactly. All this immorality and everything. Why hadn't he done anything for years? Why didn't he? Well, again, I I think I think it's a weakness in the play, mm. not an intentional aspect of the play. I think Shakespeare is figured out a uh, this kind of situation. And he has this this uh, character who who is going to make things work out okay, and um, and so we just we have to accept the premise that does that that doesn't make it you know tight or effective. Um, now let me read you what Angelo says when he's held, when he's discovered, because I think this is significant. Uh, he says to Angelo, "Sir, by your leave, hast thou or word or wit or impudence that can yet do the office? If thou hast, rely upon it till my tale be heard, and hold out no hold out hold no longer out." And Angelo says to the Duke, "O oh, my dread lord, I should be guiltier than my guiltiness." to think that I can be undiscernible, when I perceive your grace, like power divine, hath looked upon my passes, that is, looked upon the things I have done. Then, good prince, no longer session hold upon my shame, etc. So, Angelo says that the duke is like the power divine. And this was the first impression I had when I read the play, oh, 1970, for the first time seriously. And I think, and I think it's a, it's a it's a key element that the, that that even if Shakespeare has failed to bring it off completely coherently, the Duke is p- playing the role of a god in a Greek tragedy. I am the one who can make things work out. And so indeed he does. He stages this drama in the you know in the last act whereby <coughs> everybody thinks that he doesn't know anything, but he does. Now here's where I think uh, we get into <coughs> kind of Christian theology. We we think that we can escape the detection of the divine. We think we can get away with everything we're doing, and yet there is somebody who is aware of it all and who is not going to let 
uh, us get away with things. Justice. Yeah. Justice. Yeah. And again, this is unfortunately, you know, Shakespeare didn't rewrite a lot. And, you know, this is, this, he wrote like one draft and then makes a few changes. Ben Johnson's famous, uh, you know, he says, never blotted a line, question mark, would he had blotted a thousand? In other words, Johnson understands that Shakespeare, for all his incredible genius and power and beauty, uh, needed to work harder, needed to refine. He's no Sophocles. Uh, he's no, he's not somebody who's a, is a plot constructor who makes everything work out. So if we accept that there's sloppiness in the play and sloppiness in the portrayal of the Duke, we can then put aside what I think are unessential and concentrate on the fact that, you know, the, 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 the Duke is like a character in one of Christ's parables. Once upon a time, there was a, a landlord, a man who owned property, and, you know, he sent his son out to his, you know, it's a parable. Here, once upon a time, there was a duke who became concerned that his bailiff wasn't doing the right things, so he went, in, he went into, uh, into hiding and then observed him, and uh, and I and I and I think that that element gets stronger and stronger as the play goes on. As it as you know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he plucks out of a hat the the, the knowledge that uh, that uh, that uh, Angelo and Mariana had been betrothed. Yeah, this is this is most apposite. You know, this is exactly parallel as we we talked about earlier. It's big news to the reader. Yes, it yes, it, is, it is. It is. It is. It is sloppy. It's this. like it's like if you read a bad uh, mystery novel. You know, where all of a sudden, oh yeah, well I found this letter and it explains, <laughs> and then you get the whole you know this this it's called Ag Agatha Christie, and um, so if we set the sloppiness aside then I, th I think we could see one of the things he's doing is that the, the Duke has only pretended to be a slack governor because he's letting us do uh, what we want to according to our inclinations. Yeah. Now, if, the, if, if, if he were a Calvinist god, he'd be saying, yeah. <laughs> but he's not. He's, you know... Um, uh, Catholics, Anglicans, yeah. most Lutherans believe that, you know, we'll be given, uh, and, you know, uh, well. Ward's an Arminian. Yeah. I guess Ward's gone. No, Ward's somewhere, right? Yeah. No, there you are. There you, are. you just slip in, you just slip in a little into the fact. Anyway, you know, that we're, it's, it's, it, and whether the Arminians go too far is a question worth asking. That is, they, they, they put a lot of emphasis on, uh, on human free will. But the fact is that if that no matter how many scriptural passages you quote to show that everything is predetermined by the divine will, it's not a world we can live in. I mean, it, it, it is irrational and incompatible with all the injunctions to us that we should lead a moral life, that we should obey the moral law, we should do all the right things. But maybe God, as the Calvinists say has chosen certain people to o obey those rules and um, 
what we have, we have people in our family who are Calvinists. Our son, Noel, is a Calvinist. My sister's husband's a Calvinist. And they say, um, being an Arminian is making your God weak because he's not omniscient. Mm. He does not know everything. If you, all these human beings are going to make a decision one way or another, he's not going to know which way they make it, so he doesn't know everything. So right. he's not omniscient. So what... Uh, uh, one of our what Ward's um, big idols is Francis Schaeffer yeah. and his followers in Labrie, Switzerland say it's an antinomy, is that the word? Yeah. Where it is a truth that human beings cannot understand. Uh, the omniscience of God and the free will of human beings, yeah. those two things in opposition to each other, us, we cannot understand how that all works together. But God does work it together. We can't understand it, at least not fully, but we can accept it. And what the Calvinists accept is one half of it. And the result is that human will means nothing, the, our morality means nothing, the, our actions have no significance, and that we are put in the position of Muslims who are not held accountable for right. their crimes. And, and it's a it's a monstrous it's a monstrous idea which leads good people into behaving terribly. Right. And that's what we are from the Armenian pastors that we've been under have said that John Kelvin was his beliefs led to monstrous yeah. behaviors. Right. So by by the fruit a tree, you know, the fruit you bear you yeah. should be known by that. The if you look just at Calvin's Geneva and Knox's Edinburgh, you realize I I, I might as well be a Jew in Berlin nineteen thirty eight. You know, frankly I don't want that. You know, and it is now, interestingly, I once I once uh, was forced to take part in a seminar on uh, Calvin's Institutes, and so I, I read through this thing, and then I got the Latin text because I thought he can't be saying this. This is so insane, what he argues. It can't be true. So I get the Latin text and check it. Yes, it is. And he says, well, God directly wills everything that happens. Every if you slip on the stairs. He is up there saying, yeah, eh, push. And so then, we, well, somebody might quarrel with you, Mr. Calvin. And his answer, who are you to quarrel with God? In other words, I am God. I, John Calvin, I am God. I make the rules. And if you disagree with me on a point of, of a philosophical theory, then that shows you are going straight to hell. I was once having, I was once in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. it, it sounds like yeah, we were saying that there's a yeah. very close. Right. Yeah, no, it is. It is very, very similar to it is Muslim right. model yeah. way of looking at things. I was once having dinner in in uh, in a small in Paris, Tennessee. Why? It's a terrible restaurant. Terrible. And uh, it was me, uh, a traditional Anglican pastor, a Campbellite, you know, Church of Christ. 
who was confused, and two hardcore Calvinists. And the Calvinists were going, and, and the Calvinists were going on, and because they knew that I was a Southern conservative, they figured I was on their side. So they would come, and, well, Doctor, you agree with us on this. I mean, they're wrong. And I said, look, this is not my fight. And they said, well, why isn't it your fight? I said, well, because I'm Catholic, for one thing. <laughs> I don't mean to walk on their face. But at one point, the, the, the Anglican, who was, a, who was a smart man, a learned man, but a complete doofus, you know, just not able to deal with the realities of life, but a, a great, a wonderful man, uh, but incapable of, de- of, of, of being decisive. Finally, he said, Yes, that's right, he said, when they were going on and on about They couldn't take part in a school project because they said a Campbellite was not firm on the understanding of grace and predestination. So they didn't want their children hanging around with Church of God people, Church of Christ people, because they didn't understand predestination. And so the result, because they were going to hell. So the Anglican finally said, that's right, it must be very comforting. It must, you go to bed every night thinking, I'm going to hell and you're not. That's, it's so wonderful for you. Well, you're being unfair. He said, am I? Am I, going, am I going to hell or not? Well, yes. <laughs> because he's made a mistake. You make an intellectual mistake. You add two plus, you add a column of figures, you come up with the wrong answer, and you're going to hell. Now, this is insane. There are many, by the way, I'm not condemning the Presbyterian tradition. There are many fine things within Calvinism, but this error is extremely dangerous. So, the Duke. To get back to the play, you know, the, the Duke, if we say he's a kind of God, he's not a Calvinist God, he's a Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Arminian God who lets people make mistakes because we have to be free, otherwise we're puppets. You know, of course, somebody says at one point, why didn't you step in? And he says, well, of course I could have done, of course at any point I could have exercised power and said the hell with you. But he doesn't. There's no virtue yeah. in loving God if you are a robot and forced to love God. There's no virtue in it. Trying to find uh, the passage where it says that. I probably won't. <laughs> and um, Now... Another another aspect of the Duke's wisdom, it seems to me, is something, I forget who brought it up, but it's mercy. You know, through, Angelo shows no mercy. And then the Duke, I think, pretending, he condemns Angelo to death, he condemns Lucio to death. I mean, you know, it's going to be... This is going to be like a, a Stalinist coup. Let's just kill everybody. But he doesn't. Even Lucio, he condemns to marry the first prostitute who claims that it had had uh, relations with him. He says, oh, no, not that. But, you know, where would you get the idea that consorting with a prostitute wedded you to her? Where would you get a crazy idea like that? St. Paul. Yes, St. Paul. St. Paul. St. Paul. He says, don't consort with prostitutes because when you sleep with them, you get one flesh with them. 
So <clears throat> the Duke is positioned here, and by the way, it's the position in a, in a higher level. That's what he, that's how he's talking about marriage. That's how, how the play is talking about marriage. That that it's the reality of sex. It's not just some high-minded thing. A couple that has and has pledged to each other, has sexual relations, and then conceives a child. That child, if you want to say, well, I don't understand this one flesh business. Well, look at your kid. He's 50% you, 50% you. If that's not one flesh, I don't know what is. So, the, 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 the imperfection, human imperfection is not going to be weeded out. God has to be patient and look at us and, and give us enough rope either to hang ourselves or to, you know, weave a cradle with. Here, Mariana, Mariana says when, at one point when uh, she's been asked to plead for Angelo, uh, Isabella's been asked to plead for Angelo's life. You know, he, her, she's, got, she's got her brother back. And Mariana says, Isabel, sweet Isabel, do yet but kneel by me, that is to kneel to the Duke. Hold up your hands, say nothing, I'll speak all. They say, best. Are we okay? Sorry. I hoped to make it stable, I did not. Ah. <laughs> they say best men molded out of faults and for the most become much more the better for being a little bad so may my husband know Isabel will you not lend a knee you know now I used to have this young woman she worked for me and she was always wanting to marry some goody two-shoes who would be the perfect, you know, sort of evangelical pastor of her dreams. And I said, you know, uh, you don't want to marry a sissy. <laughs> you want to marry somebody who's knocked around, somebody who chooses to be good, but is not virtuous because he's incapable of being unvirtuous. You don't want to marry a loser. <laughs> and what Mariana's saying here is, Okay, Angelo's been bad, but that's because despite all his uh, hypocritical professions, he's got hot blood. There's good stuff in it. You really want a man who doesn't have hot blood? You don't want a man who's not, uh, attracted to beautiful women? And that, I think, is a very, you know, in other words, the same thing is true of Claudio. You know, he is a man... Yeah, be, for the they molded out of faults and for the most part become much more the better for being a little bad. This is why. This is why, by the way, girls tend to like outlaws, uh, troublemakers, dissidents. Why else did I lure a beautiful, charming woman? I was a troublemaker. <laughs> bad boy. Past tense. <laughs> I guess it was just my good looks, you know. <laughs> so, uh, this is one, I think, I think one of the, 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 the real themes in the play is that the Duke 
exemplified, for all his faults and all the problems of his character, he exemplifies a certain understanding of God the Father and of, and of, and of, and of the Trinity operating in this world. It's not putting a gun to our head and forcing us to behave the way we should, but allowing us freedom. You know, the uh, people, there's a, there's, you know, there's this famous, uh, the, the messianic secret in the Gospels is something people have read. Why does Jesus say, Duh, go get yourself glad, but don't tell anybody about the miracle? Well, imagine a Gospel in which Jesus at the baptism stands up and says, yes, now behold me. I am God. See that mountain over there? Boom! Blows up. You, you are a cretin, and I'm sick of you. Boom! The head blows off. And all now, who wants to do my bidding? Huh? Huh? Anybody want to disagree with me? <laughs> well, <laughs> Shakespeare probably had been itching for a while to write a play like this. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. And what's funny about that? Shakespeare's God. He's that. Yeah. Shakespeare of God let, lets us uh, try to be good and fail. Well, okay, so is Shakespeare a pen name by someone we don't know who he is? No, we know who he is. We don't. We, we know who he is. Yeah, do. do we? Okay. Yes. And was he a Christian? Oh, yeah. The best, the best knowledge is his, no. Was he a good Christian? Probably not. Was he a Christian? Certainly. His father, we know a few things. Both father and mother's family were recusant Catholic. That is, they belonged to families that were, were not happy with the Protestant settlement. We know that. His father left a will. It was found in the early 18th century in the roof of his house. The will no longer exists, but competent and honest people transcribed it at the time. And it's a Catholic will. We know that uh, the Shakespeare's mother had a cousin who was a charismatic Catholic preacher going around in the Catholic underground. Um, you know, her, his name was Harsnet, uh, doing 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 uh, doing uh, healing, and you know and. Uh, we don't know much about Shakespeare's life. He may have spent some time in Catholic Europe. There's some evidence he may have gone to Italy. We, we don't know. We do know that Christian theology plays a big role in play after play. There are plays like Hamlet that if you don't understand it as a, you have to understand it as a repudiation of, um, of a lot of what it was going on in the Anglican Church. For example, the Anglican Church requires you not to believe in purgatory because they felt that purgatory empowered the monasteries and the chantries so that you would have to pay money to these uh, to these monastic settlements in order to save your loved ones from hell mm -hmm. uh, and from purgatory. You can't save them from hell, you can save them from purgatory. That was called something. And... So, the result is um, Hamlet, the whole play turns on this. Hamlet sees his 
uncle at prayer, and he wants to kill him because he knows he's murdered his uh, brother. Right, his mother's an adulteress. Yes, his mother's an adulteress, but he doesn't murder Uncle Claudius. Why? Because he's at prayer, and he would... He, you know, my father has to be tortured, walking the earth as a ghost, suffering the pains. I could, I could send this man to heaven. You know, he's, yeah. The whole play turns on the notion of purgatory. You can't write a Protestant play in England and, 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 and have this theme. So there's theme after theme where he is somewhere between high Anglican and Catholic. And this play is one of them. His understanding of marriage is, medi- I would say, medieval Christian. Forget, forget labels like Catholic Protestant, but he isn't. But he is constantly taking posi- positions which are offensive to the current church establishment. I mean, look, who's the nicest character? Isabella. What is she? She's about to become a poor Claire. Well, what about her mother superior? She's a fine person too. What about what about brother Peter? He's a fine person. All, all of the clerical figures are positively portrayed. Why, why, why are you getting away with this? That's that's one of the astounding things. Because but England is such a ferment at this time. People hadn't made up their mind. So he's getting away with murder, in my respect, in in, in from my, my from my understanding. But there's no doubt that these things all interest him. Now, I think he's a coward. He looks around. He knows what it, If he can't, stood up and said, Look, ma'am, Mrs. Queen, Miss Queen, I'm sorry I don't accept your bogus church. I'm a Catholic. That's all there is to it. That's it. He lived in a country which had the first effective spy network, monitoring what people said in pubs, spying on them constantly and constantly putting people to death for disagreeing with the religion, whether they're Puritan or Catholic, murdering people who disagree with the religious position of the regime. So Shakespeare's not a martyr. He's a playwright. He's not a martyr. And so he probably could, uh, my view is he probably conformed to the Anglican Church and thought, well, it's okay. It's not great. It's not perfect. Okay. But he... His, his moral and spiritual ideas are all medieval. Questions? Persuaded everybody? I'm definitely not doing this play with my kids. No, no. There's well, no, no way. It's, it's a grown-up play. It's hard for me to think of William Shakespeare's sloppy. I I guess I'm not as well-read as you, well, but okay. I've never thought of I can think of an sloppy. idea for when I thought Shakespeare was sloppy. Uh, how did it go? Exit chased by a bear. Winter's tail, yeah. you got to get rid of him. Okay, you yeah. don't want to play any longer than it already is. It's just, so it's going to end well. So let's yeah. just have a bear eat him off stage. Yeah, I right. think it's kind of sloppy. He, uh, he, look, he was writing these when things for a year or whatever. And you know, boom, boom, boom. Running a theater, managing the company. Yeah, he make money. Yeah, when, yeah, he's a commercial writer. I mean, it, there's, I can't. Yeah, we, you, you have, have to. Be, you have to say, Thomas, that you somehow appreciate him, and he's our greatest writer. 
Right. I mean, he's our greatest writer. No, but you can be both. You can be, on the one hand, a, a cheap hack, and on the other hand, gee, he just happens to be a great writer. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I think I, I quoted this earlier, maybe it was just to somebody else, you know, Ben Johnson's great tribute to, uh, to his friend William Shakespeare, and they says, well, never blotted a line, would he have blotted a thousand? Because... Johnson was a perfectionist to some extent. He wrote very carefully, wrote his very beautiful construction, very deep, very serious. I think the second best writer of the period. But the fact is that Shakespeare is the best writer of the period. Johnson knew that. He wasn't disputing that. He wasn't being envious. He just said, yes, if you could take my meticulous work and combine it with this genius, you'd have Sophocles. But you don't have Sophocles, you have Shakespeare. And so he's sloppy, he's slovenly, God, he goes on and on. And he got all this, 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 this use of slang and street language and all that that drives us crazy. By the way, Johnson and Webster and Martin, they don't, they don't do that. Beaumont and Fletcher, it's, they're, they're much more readable today for that reason. He's a, he's, he is, he is what he is. He's, he's his own man, he's his own genius. People loved this stuff at the time. They loved all the uh, syphilis jokes, which go on and on and on. Do you think it's because of the Elizabethan language that he uses that sounds so foreign to Americans that we seem to think it's more sophisticated? No, I mean, you know... People in his own time, look, Ben Johnson, if there were no Shakespeare, Ben Johnson was the greatest writer of the age. And he was certainly, he was a very learned man, and, and, and by the way, I, oh, it was, I, just a hell of a human being, he fought duels, he was a brawler, you know, he, but, Johnson... I've never heard of him. I John, John, he wrote Volpone, The Alchemist. I mean, he's really... Oh, The Alchemist. I he is the I'm dominant mean. literary figure of the age, not Shakespeare. Shakespeare's <clears throat> the greatest writer. But see, there's a difference. There are people who sort of found schools with, with disciples. The Sons of Ben was a whole literary movement of people who were learning how to write gracefully in English. And, you know, they dominate the 17th century. So, but Johnson... He knows. I mean, uh, I don't think he's envious or resentful. He knows that Shakespeare is a is a one in a billion genius, and it wouldn't have been nice if he had learned, if he had taken the trouble to study and, and work hard. And you know, his his little little famous little insult, which people are puzzled by today: small Latin and less Greek. Right. But it's it sounds true. like Ben Johnson was jealous. No, but see, that's, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying he wasn't. They were friends. They were know, friends. But for one, it comes naturally. Yeah. No, no. no. It's a beautiful... Read the, read, the, read the poem. It's a beautiful tribute. And yes, Shakespeare isn't Ben Johnson. He is, he is not what Ben Johnson thought he ought to be. You, you can imagine. No, you imagine. Knows Ben Johnson anymore. They all know Shakespeare. Uh, well, that's because we're all ignorant. There was a time when everybody knew Ben Johnson, too. I think you're right. They know Shakespeare. Who's taught Shakespeare today? Yeah. What do you think about George Bernard Shaw? 
I read him all when I was a kid. My father was a big uh, Shavian, and I no longer could stand it, but I read him all several times. For some reason, they had a course at Rockford East High School in the yeah. 1970s called Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Shaw. And I had to read both of those mm. people. So what what Shaw did you read? You couldn't find two writers less like each other. No, I don't. I don't know why. Mrs. Warren's profession. I don't even remember any Shaw things. Oh, Man and Superman. Richard III. <coughs> That's Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah. Richard III. And I can't remember the Shaw book. Terrible travesty of justice against the great king. <laughs> Anyway. But, uh, you want to wind things up? Hmm? Yeah. So, uh, in, the in the absence of further uh, questions, etc., uh, we can go on eating and drinking till the cows come home. Actually, the cows have come home by now, haven't they? But.